Welcome to Always Searching, the podcast challenging conventional wisdom about health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Lynn Mark. I'm delighted that you're here. My guest today is a top product designer in the world, or I like to say in the universe, because she's also designed spacesuits for NASA. She's also designed sports attire for Nike. She's worked with Burton Snowboards and in even the U.S. Department of Defense and so many different tech startups making performance footwear, apparel, and equipment designed to really maximize experience. But importantly to me, she also sits on the Design Advisory Council for my nonprofit, iGiant, which is a, an accelerator for gendered innovation. And she even has featured products in the London Design Museum. And also, she's a professor. She's a professor and the founding director of the Sports Product Design Graduate Program at the University of Oregon. Welcome, my friend and colleague, Dr. Susan Sokolowski. Thank you for having me, Sarah It is such a treat to have you today. We're living in such a complex world, and we know that technology can really help help our lives, but can also make it more challenging. What I'd love to learn from you is how did you get into what you're doing? How did you start out? Where, where were you raised? What motivated you to get into product design? Yeah, it's a bit of a long story, so feel free to tell me if I'm saying too much. <laughs> um, so I grew up in the Hudson Valley of New York State, and I was a you know in a middle-class family, and in the Hudson Valley in the 1970s was... This really interesting space of um, art and experimentation to the fact where the public school I went to was split into like a Montessori method and a standard public school method. And by selection of the kindergarten teacher, I was put into the Montessori learning method, which really opened up a different way of learning for me where um, art and building and making and creating was just part of my experience as a child. And not only in school, I grew up in the country. And so there weren't a lot of kids around to play with. And so I was constantly tinkering and making things at home. And while I was doing all that, I got involved in sport. I played soccer in high school and the uniforms that we wore were made for boys And that was really confusing for me because they didn't fit quite right. And while I was making in the background, you know, I was making fashion apparel for myself and learning how to sew. And I I just didn't really understand as a kid, like why we could make all this beautiful, well-fitted product for female bodies and fashion. But in the sport realm, this didn't exist for women. And out of pretty young age, I was inspired to, to change that, to be the catalyst for women in sport to, you know, how can we apply design and learning of apparel design to women in sport? And so that led me to study at the Fashion Institute of Technology. And when I was in high school, that was all I was planning to do. It was like, I'm going to design school or bust. And when I got to design school, it was one of the most amazing experiences I had in my life because I was finally designing products, you know, and really learning how to do that for the female body. However, I didn't really learn the science of design. 
And that took me to graduate school. So then I went to Cornell University. I studied with Susan Watkins, who's a frontier in functional design, and really started learning there of how to apply science to products and really getting back to how to design products for female athletes. Um, while that was all happening, I, you know, worked in the fashion industry in New York City. I also, when I was at Cornell, um, worked for the Department of Defense. They actually funded my master's degree research. And at that time, women were just admitted into combat. So there were mm -hmm. all these like really cool right. projects to work on. And then um, when I was finishing up Cornell, um, I met another faculty person at University of Minnesota who was like, you know, this would be a really great place for you because they study sport and there's a faculty member there. Um, her name was Layla June Stoner and she had like a fondness for people in design. And so I went to the University of Minnesota and got my PhD in design and kinesiology. And there I really learned about the instrumentation of how to measure athletes wearing products for design and how to really collect that data and really translate that data into product. Susan, you and, have done so much. I mean, you've gone from just your own personal experiences to FIT. I remember I, I went to college and med school in New York and FIT was just known as the the, the design capital university for, for fashion designers, you know, really avant-garde out there. And then you made your way into the Department of Defense. I mean, talk about totally different. I want to learn a little bit more about your DOD experience. Why were they interested in, in fashion or design? What were they looking at? Yeah. So when I was at Cornell University, um, there is, there's actually a lot of Cornelians that work for the DOD. Um, because of the that. background and functional design. And mm -hmm. so when I was there, I was helping teaching, I was helping to teach a 3D CAD class. And I happened to meet the team that worked for the Navy. And they happened to be looking for somebody to do work for them. And so I serendipitously, you know, was hired into that organization just by, you know, a, a networking opportunity that I had by teaching a class. So and what is functional design? Functional design is really looking at how to apply science to products. So okay. when we think of functional design, we think of material science, thermoregulation, impact protection, mobility, um, dexterity, um, protection from elements, you know, elements as, as, you know, much as rain to all the way to chemical warfare. Um, we think about, um, really all of the, like cushioning the body. We think about like mm -hmm. all the things that a product in like the PPE or in the sports world, what mm -hmm. the product needs to do to keep the athlete or the user safe or allow them to perform better while wearing the product. I mean, that's so incredible because I know when you go and you buy something, you go and you think, well, first of all, does it look like it's going to fit me? Is it attractive? You know, can I afford it? But you no know, one really in the everyday life tends to think about it from that aspect, but yet it, you're absolutely right. It's, it's critical. If it's not going to do what it needs to do to protect you and then help you, then it's not 
needed to be worn. Right. And it's, it's a very challenging problem, set of problems to solve. And one of the things that I like to talk to my students about is in our space, we design for the great ironies of, you know, of life. Mm-hmm. And so uh, as an example, okay. in sports product, athletes demand, say I'm pl- um, designing a hockey uniform, athletes demand impact protection. However, they want it at the lightest weight possible. And because of that ironic relationship between lightweight and impact protection, it creates, you know, a space for materials innovation. It creates a space for better mobility. It creates a space of looking at breathability because all of those things then become also important to the hockey athlete. Absolutely. And across every sport or every type of performance, you know, activity, wouldn't you say? Yes, yes. It, it, it's, it's just really, like when you step back from it, it becomes really challenging to solve for because you have all these things that are saying like, what about me? What about me? I need to fix this. And then mm-hmm. I need to fit the body, right? And often if you've had ex- experience buying product that doesn't work for you, for you, one of those things have been omitted in the design process. And so what we try to bring awareness to is that design is very complicated. Design for the body is very complicated. And there are so many considerations to think about. And how can you do that in the best way possible so that more people can be affected? So you have really been a leader in this. I've heard that you have over 40 utility and design patents, and that's incredible. What are you most proud of in regard to some of these designs? Well, for me, what I, I kind of look at design as um, kind of the glass half full. Mm-hmm. So I'm always looking at what can we do better? And because of my background in fashion, And because of my curiosity when I was first studying, it exposed me to some things that maybe other designers didn't have exposure exposure to. So for example, when I was at FIT, I, you know, I really wanted to get into sports. And I realized at the time, like a lot of sports products were made from knits. And I was like, like, that synthetic stuff. Knits are a a textile construction, so it Mm -hmm. allows you to build a material that is stretchy. Okay. And so I learned about knitting, and I actually went and studied in England knitting, and I learned how to program knitting machines, and I learned how to make knitted fabrics by hand, just because I really was curious of like all the little details that would go into a sports product. And so coming down the line, when I was then at Nike, I had a job in footwear innovation. And one of the things that we kept hearing from the women that we were talking about, talking with in our research was that I'm looking for footwear that's as comfortable as a sock. And so that led us to development of Flyknit, which Mm -hmm. was the first knitted shoe, like engineered knitted shoe. And so for me, I'm always looking at how can I integrate things that I learned in the past in ways that maybe haven't been executed before 
and looking at how those could be kind of like toolbox, like what are those things in my toolbox that I can use to create new things? So you mentioned you worked with Nike. Can you tell us a little bit about your time there and why you went there and perhaps, you know, one or two of the designs that you're really, really proud of that, you know, has made a difference? Yeah. So when I was a kid, so when I was that, you know, young athlete playing soccer, I was like, I'm going to go to design school so I can work at Nike. And so I did everything in my life to try to get me out here to Portland, Oregon to work (laughs) at Nike. And so my first job was working in soccer. I was hired as the first equipment designer in soccer equipment. I designed soccer balls and shin guards and bags and goalkeeper gloves and did all that. But when I, when I came to Nike, I kept asking people like, where are the women's designers? Like, where Mm -hmm. are the people that are focusing on women's innovation? And at the time they weren't there. And this was in the late nineties. And so I kept trying to meet people in senior leadership that were interested in women's. And, you know, I'd always carry around products and things that I worked on for women and, you know, people were always very cordial and really nice, but it was always kind of like, I don't think this is going anywhere. (laughs) And then then one day I received an email from a woman, her name is Darcy Winslow. um, And she was like, I'd like to meet you. And she happened to be the new appointed GM of women's at Nike. And that was a really big thing. Mm -hmm. And she asked me if I would join her team as their first women's innovation designer for footwear. And so for me, that was a really big deal because it was something that I thought existed when I was in high school. It clearly didn't. And it was really like monumental in the sports industry. Um, that there was like a really, truly focused women's team at Nike to do that. And so for me, that was a really big deal. And then from there, I moved into apparel innovation where I moved into more of a leadership role overseeing um, women's innovation in the apparel realm at Nike before I moved to the University of Oregon. So women's innovation, I mean, that conjures so many different thoughts. Can you share with us why we even have to think about that. I mean, what are the differences between men and women, male, female? I mean, we, I know we're moving more towards that non-binary perspective and we'll talk about that next, but just for the sake of discussion, what are, what are some of the issues that you had to contend with and what do women consumers or male consumers need to think about when they buy their products? Yeah, I, there's lots of things. So in our industry, we've heard, the phrase shrink it and pink it. Right. And that is really Mm -hmm. how most people approach the women's industry still today, where Mm -hmm. there'll be products that were originally developed for a male body Mm -hmm. and they were resized, maybe without the use of any female anthropometric data and recolored to make it appropriate for women. Mm-hmm. So they just what, cosmetically changed it. Can you talk about what anthropometric measurements are? Yeah. Just in case so anthropometry know. is a field of study where we actually measure the human body. And in my research, I look at this through the use of 3D body scanning, where we scan individuals and then we measure them. We may, in addition to measuring them, we may look at like the volume of change of their body. So if you think about um, like the volume of the breast 
under impact when running and how that may affect like the design of a sports bra or when you're squatting, um, the amount of ease that's needed in a pant or a tight to allow Mm -hmm. you to move and be mobile while you're Mm -hmm. playing sport. Um, so anthropometry is really important, but it's often an area that is missed in product creation. It's incredible that in this day and age, it's missed because you would think, you know, people are demanding better performance and they demand everything around them to help them get there. What, what drove it for you and for Nike to finally do this? The study of anthropometry is really difficult. It takes a long time. In, in companies where um, you are held against, you know, very quickly moving calendars and timelines mm-hmm. and business models to stop and collect data and to analyze data and then to change all of the ways that you make products. So changing the lasts, if you're looking at footwear. So the last is the, um, the structure that goes underneath the shoe when it's being made. Mm-hmm. Um, or changing mannequins, and if you're looking at apparel, to change the sizing of it. Those are multi-million dollar changes that a company must make. Wow. And they also are changes in the, the product creation process, so they could slow things down. And a lot of companies just don't have the time or the, the funds to do that. And so for me, like coming back into academia, it really allows me to focus on this and work on it for other people and kind of be that person outside of a company that they can go to, to, to work on these things. To be their advisor. You know, I learned about this really firsthand. I I like to climb mountains. I like to hike. I like to explore anything that is a giant rock. You know, you can count me on it. I think it's my Colorado roots. And I had these phenomenal hiking boots. They went all over the world with me. And I was just always thrilled to wear them. And they got washed away while I was on a mountaintop that literally the soles got washed away in Mm -hmm. a storm. So I had to buy new boots. And I went to buy them outside the, the national park that I was at. And Everyone who had to get new boots, including men, had the same style of boot, but just different color. And mm-hmm. I was told, you know, absolutely, it's designed for a woman's foot, a woman's gait. And, you know, I tell people the story because it helped me to see the light and eventually create iGiant. Mm-hmm. But I wore them. They were uncomfortable. I figured that's what you need to do for the first week. And then when I went back to wearing my day shoes, when I went back into my office, I stepped down and I tore the ligaments in my midfoot. And I think Mm -hmm. it's because of the extreme stress that my foot had been in Mm -hmm. all week to try to, you know, maneuver through these boots. And that was really eye-opening to me. So it's not just, you know, performance, but it's safety. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think, like I said, um, when you're designing a product, so let's use your boot as an example, There are so many considerations that go into that boot design or should go into that boot design, right? So your boots may have been designed for a female body, but maybe it was a female body with a different gait, right? Maybe Mm -hmm. the person who the shoe was designed for had a flat foot, or maybe they were a forefoot striker, or maybe they needed more durability or maybe they needed less flexibility right and so when you start adding all those things up this boot even though it said women's on it 
it wasn't made for you. Right. Clearly. And so for me, like those sort of things are really important when you're working on products to really understand. So when I work with my students, I'm always like, who's this made for? What, what are the environmental conditions of this product? Are we looking at injuries? Are we, you know, do we need to consider safety? So going back to your question of safety, safety can come in so many different ways, right? It can come in fit. It can come in, if we look at masks, like the coverage of the mask, right? It could come in the materials. It can come in the flexibility of it. It could come in, even like I look at firefighting. um, We have some research we've been doing, looking at just the type of materials that are made for a boot and just some of those things because women typically weigh less, they have less mass. They're just not impacting materials the same way Mm -hmm. as a male counterpart would. And so all those like really fine details right down the stitching need to be fully considered when you're building products. So you and I first connected, it was around the time of the spacesuit issue where we Mm -hmm. just didn't have a spacesuit that fits. Some of our female astronauts who needed to do EVA, you know, walk out in space and you need to be protected. Yes. Um, How did you get into spacesuit design from all that you were doing? What brought you to that? Yeah. So um, for me, so when I worked for the DOD, Mm-hmm. The group I worked for um, looked at the protection of F-18 pilots. So those are pilots that are like kind of the the step right below astronauts. They're, mm-hmm. you know, flying high yes. performance aircraft. Yes. They're undergoing really high Gs, so a little bit different than astronauts, but they require similar products. So they have compression garments that they wear. And so in that space we were tasked with looking at female bodies. And in that space, I, you know, looked at compression and blood flow, which also led me into work that I did at Nike, looking at compression and blood flow for athletic um, recovery. And so the space, um, the space area was familiar from a kind of tangential space, (laughs) not to put on that, but, um, and then I have students that, you know, will look at athlete at at astronauts as athletes, because not only do astronauts have to work out in space, they are, you know, exerting a lot of energy, like athletes, they require Mm -hmm. the same sort of um, benefits from product that athletes do. They require thermoregulation. It may be at like much greater differences. Um, they require mobility. They require impact protection. So they require all the same things as an athlete would require, um, just at, at a totally different level. And so when I was asked to write the article that you read and how we connected, um, mm-hmm. for me, we had a student that was working in the space. I had already had experience from my time at the DOD and working in athletics to um, kind of provide a point of view on that. So it's going to be so important as the commercial space sector really literally launches and takes off because we're not going to have those superstar athletes. We're going to have everyday people. Mm -hmm. So we need to ensure we're providing protection, but also enabling them to to work and live well and safely. As I like to say in in, in IGI and in in every environment on Earth and space. So talking about Earth, and, and this is a bit controversial, there's been so much 
oh, discussion and, and news stories about transgender athletes lately. Mm-hmm. Let, let's talk a little bit about that because, you know, there's this issue of whether one has an unfair advantage. Could you say that if one has high-performance athletic equipment and apparel, that they're at, the other athletes are at an unfair facing inequities? Yeah, so... This is a really complicated question. Mm-hmm. And so I'll decouple it in my my way and just feel free to ask me more questions about it. So in the sports arena, so if I'm working on an elite level product, say for the Olympics, mm-hmm. there are very specific rules and guidelines that all apparel, footwear, and equipment must follow in order to be involved in the Olympics. And so when you're working on those things, that's your first kind of point of reference. And so when you hear about products being disqualified from the Olympics or hearing athletes that are not able to wear products for the Olympics, mm-hmm. it is usually because the rule book was not followed. And if the company wanted to make a change, they didn't go through the process to get their product approved. And unfortunately on the media side of things that is often isn't shared like that process and the behind the scenes, but there are ways for new products to come in. They just need to go through the right chain of command. And usually they're through like a medical team Mm -hmm. um, or the federation or the IOC itself to get approval. When we are looking at um, transgender athletes, Mm -hmm. I look at it in two ways. There is the aesthetic solution for transgender athletes. So how do I want my body to look? And how do I want to appear? And then there's the performance side of that. And I think the performance side of it is very complicated because, you know, and I'll use the, I'll continue to use the Olympics as the kind of like the topic here, because I think it just makes it easier to like to convey what I'm saying in the Olympics, you know, drug doping athletes taking hormones and other sorts of medications to enhance performance has been widely shared and widely written about and widely frowned upon. And, and athletes still continue to do that, right? Um, athletes are always looking for an edge and some, you know, will still do that. And, you know, we'll try to dodge drug tests and what have you. And some mm-hmm. athletes will totally play clean. Mm-hmm. And, And then there are trans athletes who are taking hormones because of uh, a choice, right? Because their choice is probably coming first, not from athletic performance. It's coming from like a a sex and gender um, point of view. And so I think where that gets complicated in our space is that do we build products? First of all, do we build products to enhance the sex you were born with or the one that you're moving towards or the one that you're in? And then we have the whole fairness 
of athletes mm-hmm. taking hormones. Right? right. And so it's very complicated. And I think, I think in the future, there may need to be another division of competition, mm-hmm. right? Or mm-hmm. there may need to be other ways that athletes can compete. And a really good example of this is in the Paralympics. Mm-hmm. If you look at the Paralympics, what most people don't know is that Paralympians, they compete at different classifications. So if I'm a track and field athlete in the Paralympics, there's like a classification for blind athletes. There's a classification for wheelchair athletes. And maybe we learn from events like the Paralympics to look at how we address other athletes that want to compete. So, and it's a tough question to answer, but do you think that transgender athletes should be competing in their own environment? Or do you think that they can be integrated into what's existing right now? So for example, a trans woman competing against other women. I think it's really hard. Like I would probably say I'm not an authority in that space. I'm just the Mm -hmm. product designer designing Mm -hmm. for these bodies. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would not feel comfortable answering that. But I do think what is interesting about this is we haven't, we barely have moved the needle in product for women. Mm-hmm. And we are now, now we are looking at products for trans athletes, which I think is really important. And so what I'm hoping is that because of this, we don't, we don't, not do the work. Like we keep doing the work for everybody and it doesn't, this doesn't make us take a step backwards where we don't do anything. And what I mean by that is I've heard some companies say, we'll just do everything unisex now. Mm -hmm. And And for me, that can be problematic because Mm -hmm. I grew up in the unisex age, right? Right. And the product wasn't great. And so what I think the solution is, is that we need to consider all bodies and all needs. And I will leave it up to the race, and the governing <laughs> bodies to decide how, how people compete. But I do think as a person who's designing for different bodies, it's a really interesting space and a space that we can help with. So you're ensuring, I almost call it assisted devices, allowing people to really reach their, their best, yes. whatever you know that may be. What I love is that you're teaching the next generation. So mm-hmm. you are mentoring, you're encouraging. I, I listened into one of your sessions. I think it was on shoe design, which was fantastic. Um, how did you get back to the university? And, and what's like one of the biggest highlights for you while you're teaching right now? What, what are you most proud about? Yeah. So for me, I had been always an adjunct professor while I was working at Nike. And that was something really important to me. When I went to grad school, I had the opportunity to teach. And gosh, I just thought it was so important that you had teachers that actually worked in the industry and knew what they were talking about regarding design. I thought the teachers I had that really worked in the industry and really knew how to commercialize product 
were the best ones I had. And I wanted to do that for students of the future. So in 2015, the university recruited me for the position I have now, which is a brand new program in sports product design. It's the only one of its kind in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And for me, what was so appealing about it was that I was able to come back and give back, you know, kind of really be a teacher like I had when I was in college to students of the future that want to work in design. And also it really allowed me to start doing my own research and research that wasn't connected to a bottom line Mm -hmm. and research that was really meaningful to underserved users that weren't being addressed at companies. And, and that was just so important to me. And as like, I get older every year, I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so much to work on. There's so many (laughs) things still to work on and coming out of a company that I worked for almost 20 years at, I was really surprised when I started like really looking into the literature, like how little work had been done while I was like working at a company. And it just almost gave me my marching orders of like, you've got to like work on this. Like, this is so important. And, you know, how can you make a difference? And you are, I mean, you are changing the lives of those who are coming up, but also those who are consumers. What should a consumer look at when he or she or they buys a product so that they know that they're getting the best fit, that it's safe, that it is effective to what they need to do. And of course, looks great and is affordable. Yeah, <laughs> I think all those things <laughs> are important. Well, I think you have to first determine kind of like looking at a, a spectrum of is this for fashion or is this for performance? And the more performance and safety you need, the more time you need to spend exploring that product and actually trying and fitting it on and being like in person with it. One of the projects I'm working on right now is looking at the fit of female firefighting uniforms. Very important. And yeah. And there are a large number of women in the United States that are injured because of the uniforms Mm -hmm. that are given. And what our research has decoupled was that the process of women acquiring gear the process isn't very, um, it's, it's not taking in feedback from women of their pain points with fit. And so the industry is giving these women, you know, products that say made for female firefighters, but when a female firefighter has like a bad experience with the product, that input isn't being received in the right place. And so my suggestion is for anybody who's looking to buy product or acquire a product is that they do as much work on the front end of fitting and trying it on. And that's really hard in a day and age when we buy everything over the internet. And so making sure that your products have return policies so that you can Mm -hmm. return things or even um, if it's sports products, like working, like buying products from companies that allow you to try things out and return them are always good. And then when it comes to like serious PPE, like firefighting, you know, chemical protection, anything like that, it's like really providing a voice in your experiences and really sharing where products have failed. Because I think 
Um, when I look at women in PPE, I think people talk about it, people write about it, but there's often not, and this is where like, I feel my research contributes is that people talk about it doesn't fit, but there isn't a solution to how to make mm-hmm. it better. And that is where like the big wide space of the future is for my work is like, all right, now how do we fix it? And I love that you use the word space. So from everything from spacesuits to our space here on this beautiful planet so that we can stay safe. So with everything that you're doing, and there is so much there, how do you stay balanced in all of it? And how do you use the technology that you actually design to benefit your life? Well, I would say I feel I feel a burden to work on these projects. I feel like there's just so much, like I said, so much to work on. So I am constantly have my fingers in lots of things and maybe too many things. Um, but you know, these are, these are projects that I really love doing and Mm -hmm. really love helping support the users on the end. And so for me, I am always like looking at that glass half full and how can I fix things and how can I help people? And For me, it's just really now looking at what is going to have the biggest kind of bang for it and what, what can I do to like use knowledge from other things to contribute to other fields. So what is the product that you use that you designed that we all need to know about? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I am not, I'm like a little sheepish about kind of boasting about stuff that I do. I think, I think for me, I am most excited about things like, so I recently worked with old Navy on looking at their sizing system. And we spent a lot of work looking at um, their extended sizes and moving all the way down through their sizing system. I think that more recently is something I'm really proud about because we're like affecting the lives of thousands and thousands of people through just one company's output. And I think in the sports space, a lot of the work I've done in like sport bras, I think that's really important. Um, It's like, I see technologies that I developed, you know, 10 years ago now being put in products from other companies and being used by other people. So for me, I don't like to kind of be like, Oh, I did that. But I like to see um, kind of the oozing of knowledge into other spaces. And I think that's really fun. Well, I, I need to say thank you because I know probably the clothes I'm wearing on my back and the shoes that I'm wearing to take those footsteps to get me from one point to the next, you probably had something to do with it. And it's it's making a huge difference. Susan, I want to thank you for also taking the time to share your, your life's journey and what you're doing and what you're passionate about. And I know it's going to inspire so many people. So thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. And until next time, we're always searching. Thank you so much for listening to Always Searching. Please share it with your community. This podcast was produced by Noah Jones and hosted by me, 
Dr. Sarah Lynn Mark. Until next time, we're always searching. <laughs>